Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. If you've been enjoying Unchained, pop into iTunes to give us a top rating and review. That helps other listeners find the show. Clarity PR is a global strategic communications agency that shapes market-leading narratives for brands in crypto and blockchain to drive awareness and grow business. Working with clients, including Atlas Quantum and Securitize, Clarity can move quickly to differentiate the value of your business. Please visit clarity.pr to learn more. Raising the bar together with Preciate, launching this summer. As a sponsor of Unchained, Preciate has recognized amazing people because Preciate believes in the strength of recognition and relationships and the strength of community. Who will be recognized today? Stay tuned. My guests today are Jeremy Allaire, CEO and co-founder of Circle, and Sean Neville, co-founder and president. Welcome, Jeremy and Sean. Thank you. Nice to be here. Let's start with what Circle is. Jeremy, what are the primary services you guys offer and how do they fit together? Sure, yeah. So Circle offers a range of products in the crypto space. At the one end, we have a free payment service where people can send and receive payments instantly, including across currencies. And that's built on blockchain tech. And we'll come back to talk a little bit more about that as we as we uh, talk about our fiat stablecoin work as well. And, you know, sort of all the way at the other end of the business, we have something called Circle Trade, which is a over-the-counter trading service for crypto, one of the largest market makers in the world in, in crypto assets. And uh, we also operate trading platforms um, and investment platforms. So Circle Invest is a retail product to invest in a collection of different crypto assets. Today, that's about seven assets, including the ability to buy the market just with a couple taps. And uh, and then Poloniex, which is a crypto exchange that we acquired a few months ago, uh, and which is much more sophisticated in terms of both the range of assets you can trade and also the trading strategies that you can pursue on that. So that's sort of the products today. And we're also launching a new um, US dollar coin, which is a fiat stable coin in the near future. Over the years, Circle has changed its services and it's also expanded in Earlier, it was a place where you could buy Bitcoin. Then it became a place where you could easily make payments in fiat, but not in Bitcoin. And now it's a place where you can not only buy Bitcoin, but multiple assets, as you mentioned earlier. How has the space overall changed as the time you've been in it? And how has your strategy changed along with that? I can take part of that. And I think Sean would probably have a lot to add here, too. You know, we started the company five years ago, and we were really excited about the idea that this new infrastructure layer for the internet was being created. And Bitcoin was the best and strongest example of that infrastructure at the time. But we were really excited about the idea that lots of different types of assets could be what we now say today tokenized, but could be turned into digital assets. And they could become programmable digital assets that both traditional forms of money like fiat currency, but also other types of assets could sit on a system like that. And that 
once that infrastructure was built, we could really reconceptualize what financial services products were. We could, you know, ultimately make things like payment banking just a free service on the internet, and we could reconceptualize what things like lending and wealth management and other investment type products would look like all on that crypto native infrastructure. So those were sort of founding ideas for the company. But, you know, the way the technology has evolved, the way the market's evolved, obviously, we couldn't entirely predict. Sean, you could maybe touch on sort of how that kind of path has evolved in line with how the market's evolved. Yeah. And I'm especially interested in that moment where you did drop Bitcoin from the app. And then what made you decide to reintroduce not only Bitcoin, but multiple assets? Yeah, I can maybe uh, chime in on part of that. I think, you know, first of all, we never we never stopped working on top of Bitcoin and in fact have added other crypto assets over time so that we, you know, Circle Trade operates with many cryptocurrencies, crypto assets. And uh, and we never stopped doing that. I think um but the, but there was a period where people could no longer buy Bitcoin, right? It was that you were using it on the back end, but people in their experience were dealing with fiat. Even then, people could still buy uh, crypto assets from Circle. Um, I think you're referring to specifically the Circle Pay app, which is which is a mobile app that allows people to send and receive money potentially across currencies, say euro to dollars, and and so forth. And that does leverage crypto assets in in, in blockchain tech. In fact, we'd sort of imagine that the future of payments, whether you think of it as a as social payment or remittance or whatever category of payment it is, we'd imagine that those those things should be operating on top of global standards, like the equivalent of an HTTP, but for money. And, you know, we can we can send each other content using open standards around the world. Um, and we would foresee that in the future, payments should execute in the same way, that it should be seamless to send one another payments around the world. And that um, that things like Bitcoin and, and the evolution of blockchain technology and crypto assets that fuel them uh, will enable that thing to happen. That doesn't necessarily mean that Someone who's sending a dollar to to someone else in the U.S. or overseas to India or Europe or wherever it may be necessarily wants to buy a Bitcoin. Um, it means that they want to be able to seamlessly send money and engage with one another, you know, through the currencies that they uh, that they already use. Even though the the payment facility itself may end up involving translation into other crypto assets, and so you know that was that was the focus of the payment product. But certainly, it relies on crypto assets to function. And we always still traded those assets. And that, as Jeremy had mentioned, is uh, what led to the emergence of circle trade and, and ultimately others. Another piece to this, just to maybe answer your question a little bit more, Laura, which is, you know, the the goal of someone who wants to make a, an instant free frictionless payment is, you know, using a fiat denominated transaction. The goal of that user is really different than the goal of someone that wants to say speculate on a crypto asset. So the the difference between a kind of payment behavior versus an investment behavior is really really important and we want to very clearly segment those. So people who want to make payments and do that really easily and again we believe that for global mainstream adoption of crypto infrastructure a lot of that is going to be denominated in fiat, but for people who want to invest in the underlying assets that fuel these blockchains and other types of assets that are emerging that provide utility for other services or even investment contracts that are tokenized, people really, I think, would benefit from a, uh, a service that is very clearly focused on making investments, managing a portfolio, looking at your rate of return, uh, looking at you, you know your risk balance, those kinds of things. And so rather than trying to munge together like an investment behavior with a payment behavior, we you know, have separated out the investment behavior into its own standalone app, which is Circle Invest, 
uh, which is, I, you know, I think a really delightful app for people who are focused on investing in crypto or buying something like Bitcoin or Ethereum or other types of digital assets. Yeah, I used it last night just to to see what it was like. And I do agree that it was so simple. <laughs> um, it was it was very fun. It's, you know, I, I feel like every time I use this technology, especially if I'm using it directly on the blockchain, you know, through like my own wallet or something, it feels like magic. But but you guys did put together a great customer experience there. I'm so curious, actually, and I know this might be a little bit of an apples to oranges comparison, but across your four different products, which offerings have the most traction now? Because I, I view it as maybe a lens through which you could sort of take a snapshot of the overall crypto space right now. So I'm so curious to to know where you see the most uptake. Yeah, each of the products r- really are in different stages or life cycles. So, you know, CirclePay has been available broadly for more than a couple of years. It has several million customers. It grew 500% last year. And it's got, I think, pretty significant traction in Europe as well, where products like Venmo don't really exist yet. The, you know, Poloniex obviously had an enormous last 12 months. It grew dramatically. We acquired that a few months ago. And that, you know, that's a product that also has several million customers. It, it has been a, a leader in, you know, the crypto exchange market. We're obviously in a bear market right now. So we're in a you know, slightly different environment than, you know, May or June of last year or, or into the fall. And we come back to talk about that as well. Uh, and then Circle Trade, we've had as a business for several years. And that's just a very significant scaled business right now, um, generates pretty significant revenue and, and cash flow uh, for the company had an enormous growth year over the last year on a lot of different fronts. And then uh, Circle Invest is really new. Um, it went to kind of full general availability about a month, uh, a month or so ago, and uh, has had really good early traction, highly engaged users who keep coming back and using it. And um, we're, we're very happy with the early traction we're seeing on it. And I'm guessing you'll be making money from, or you already are, as you said, making money from Circle Trade and and I'm sure Poloniex. But it seems like the payments offering maybe is is that's offered for free, and that's not a money maker for you. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Circle Pay is a free service, and I think you know we've we've talked in the past about this. We don't believe there's a business model for payments. We think that payments, whether it's between people or between people in a business or even between businesses, is just going to be a commodity-free service on the internet, just like sharing information or content or data. We think that you know, crypto assets, blockchain tech, things like applied AI all make it possible to move and synchronize value globally, instantly, very, very cheaply. And so we don't really see a business model in charging fees for payments anymore. And Circle Invest is free as well, but I think maybe you make a little bit of money on the spread or something. Sean, do you want to talk a little bit about how Circle Invest works? Yeah, sure. Circle Invest is uh, you know it's a zero commission product, so there's no fee in that sense. Of course, there is there is a, a spread in the purchase of the currencies, and uh, you know we try to be completely transparent about what that is. May it may you know vary over time as we continue to add more tokens to to the product. But uh, but that is a revenue generating product. So I think in terms of you know where we're seeing traction, um, something like Circle Pay is geared more at at usage. Something like Circle Trade 
you know, typical trades are say, you know, a million dollars or so uh, per trade. So that's a relatively small number of users, but, but fairly high, uh, you know, notional volume. So it's um, like you said, it's a, it's a little bit apples and oranges, but, you know, but certainly on the consumer side, the notion is, well, payments, we do believe ultimately will be free. The notion of paying somebody for holding money or for the privilege of sending it and, you know, updating the ledgers or, in the the world of traditional money, updating the databases that that hold the account balances, paying someone to do that will just go to zero, and the internet should make that for free. But whether Circle does it or not, it's just inevitable that payments as a business goes to free, and so there should be massive usage, and that can be you know parlayed into other kinds of uh, financial products that are revenue generating. Let's talk about your backgrounds because you both have pretty extensive tech and entrepreneurial backgrounds prior to crypto. And I just want listeners who maybe aren't aware of, of that to, to get a taste of kind of what you've been doing. But I also want to know beyond what you did, just how aspects of that experience helped you grasp the potential of crypto early and that, how that has influenced your thinking about how the space will develop. Sure. I can start. So yeah, I've been working, uh, and Sean and I overlap a lot in terms of things we've worked on and, and so on. So some of this is sort of a sh- shared background, but I've been working in internet-based technology platforms since the early 90s. And, you know, back in 1994, late 93, 94, got very excited about the possibility of open protocols, making it easy to connect and share information and communications and and actually build software applications that could run through web browsers. And web browsers had just come out at that time. Uh, and so worked on products that were basically aimed at turning the web into an app platform where you could write code and build interactive applications that could run in browsers and built uh, helped uh, create a product called Cold Fusion, which was one of the first web programming languages and development tools. And that business, Alaricorp, sort of evolved into like a whole family of, you know, HTML development tools, server programming languages, app servers, fundamental infrastructure for sort of building the web, building content apps and transactional apps on the internet. That's how uh, I got to know Sean, and uh, Sean can kind of share more on, on his background as well. And then um, that that grew to be a global public company with millions of customers. And then eventually we merged with Macromedia, which was one of the bigger internet software companies in the late 90s. And so basically Macromedia had all the tools for creating content. So creating images, creating web pages, creating animation, creating video, and was the chief technology officer there. And worked on a number of different things. But one of the things that I got really excited about was video on the internet. And similarly, you know, to earlier things, I think, saw back in like 2002, 2003, that, you know, open protocols running on these decentralized networks could make it possible to kind of create a model for television distribution and and video distribution that kind of replaced cable and satellite and TV or sort of more proprietary closed centralized systems and um, and then ended up leaving Macromedia and starting another company called Brightcove, which is a it's another uh, global public company now, and uh, you know thousands of media companies and major brands use it to kind of run their online television and, and video platforms. Yes, I've used Brightcove as a journalist. <laughs> yeah, so it's sort of a lot of media companies use it, and and so on. And I, you know, again, the idea was, you know, the open internet, open networks, open protocols make it possible to kind of replace how an industry works and open it up to more people globally. 
So those were kind of common themes. And then, you know, for me, at least back in 2012, when I became much more interested in crypto, what really struck me at least was that, you know, what we were seeing with Bitcoin in particular was sort of the birth of a new, you know, set of protocols, a new set of open infrastructure that would decentralize not just information exchange and communications and and data exchange, which sort of these prior platforms had done, but it was the foundation for how you could do that to value exchange, um, both sort of the, the transfer of value between people, but also how you manifest contracts and how you manifest economic relationships, that kind of value exchange could all be built on these open networks and infrastructure. And, and to me, it felt like, uh, you know, this was probably more significant than the birth of the web and that the next 20 years would probably, in terms of the impact of this, would be probably much, much greater, far greater than the impact of the web. So it just became really obvious to Sean and I that this was, you know, this was a kind of once in a lifetime opportunity to work on that. But maybe, Sean, you can kind of go through your narrative. My background is less technical than Sean's, but certainly very product centric. Yeah, although I do want to highlight that for listeners, because I also recently interviewed Chris Dixon, who majored in philosophy, and I majored in something called modern thought literature. And so I definitely want to highlight, you can go into the liberal arts and still, <laughs> and still, uh, you know, have your profession in technology in some fashion. So I don't want people to. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Sean's, Sean's a, what, you're an English major, Sean, is that right? Yeah, I mean, my background is in engineering, but certainly my undergraduate degree was in English. And uh, I think particularly, this is the birth of the web, but um, carries through to the day. You know, I've, I've met so many amazing computer scientists and software architects and, and um, people in all domains, but technical included, who have been political science or English or philosophy. Yeah, I absolutely believe in the, the whole education rather than uh, strictly, you know, vocational paths. Yeah. So anyway, but why don't you talk a little bit about your background and then we'll dive deeper into media issues around Circle. Yeah, sure. Maybe just, you know, briefly maybe I'll take it from the perspective of how this is connected to crypto first and then go backward a little bit. I think one of the common threads um, for me has been uh, enabling people to do things that they couldn't necessarily do before, or at least not very easily do before, whether it's been someone who's a graphic designer or a business person allowing them to get their work on the web and distribute it around the world to, to people, making that really easy without requiring, you know, a bunch of engineers to help make that happen. Or in the case of crypto, connecting people who may not have access to first world bank accounts or maybe do have access, but are uh, charged a toll for using them in certain ways, helping them create businesses and support their causes and, and you know, charities and families and business ideas. And, you know, the idea of connecting them globally through a web of finance is really appealing and I think has some analogs to previous things I've done. And um, another element to me, maybe a little more on the technical side is just this notion of what is information? Um, how is it, how is information shared? How is it, you know, generated? And if we look at money as another form of data, if it could be treated as just a data type on the open internet, how is that particular data type best created and shared and distributed, you know, globally. And um, you know, crypto is particularly appealing from from that angle. You know, in my past, um, I've created server products and worked on languages and frameworks and mobile apps, consumer side, and kind of worked at, you know, various stages of different things, been involved in, you know, standards organizations and, and pushing forward, you know, open standards when it came to the web. And I think a lot of that is, is uh, you know, relevant certainly to this space. But Similar to some of the things Jeremy was was mentioning, I feel like although we've 
known each other for around 20 years and done a lot of things together. This, this particular space is, is the biggest and, and the most important thing that, that we've been engaged in. So I find what you guys were talking about with these open standards and everything and this free flow of value, similar to the way we saw free flow of information. I find all those comments interesting because here you are in this place. I mean, you guys have been making a lot of moves. We'll just start with one for now. One is that you've applied for a federal banking license. And I think this you know, in a certain respect, it sort of like replicates existing structures. But I'm just curious as to why you applied for it and what that would enable you guys to do. This is definitely uh, an example of, uh, I don't know what you call it, telephone. <laughs> so Bloomberg published a story that with a pretty dramatic headline. Um, but if you actually read the story, it basically says we've had some conversations with folks at the Treasury Department about national charters. So we have, we have not applied for a banking license. I think Bloomberg had heard that we had had a meeting and got us on the record, you know, saying we had a meeting. So we have not applied for a banking license. We have tremendous banking partners in the U S and globally. And I think we definitely want to understand how federal banking regulators are looking at the space. And just to put that in context, you know, we are, um, you know, we're dealing with a few different things that are kind of at the intersection of, of banking regulations and, and crypto that includes, you know, custodial activities. So, you know, unlike traditional kind of payments companies or, or, or brokerages, like we're a custodian of assets and that's sort of native to how this stuff works. So we're a custodian of billions of dollars of crypto assets, people who hold assets across our retail and institutional capabilities, including our exchange. And as more and more, you know, institutions get into this space, they want to know, like, are you regulated as a custodian? And, and because regulated custodians sort of have certain protections and, you know, um, safeguards, and they're sort of examined differently. And so definitely want to understand that is there's something we could do legally that would improve how institutions look at sort of keeping value in crypto, because we want to see more and more adoption of that. So that that's one dimension of, of why we would have those kind of conversations. The other is, you know, we're, um, we're really close to launching US dollar coin. And, you know, we're creating a model for, you know, taking US dollars and turning them into crypto assets in a in a open standards way, in a way that works with high quality banking onshore in a regulated environment. And so, you know, the sort of introduction of tokenized fiat in a, you know, in a commercially viable way that really intersects with how, you know, the U.S. Treasury is in charge of the U.S. dollar. So it's, you know, I think there's an opportunity to work with the federal government on models for how um, we tokenize fiat currencies all around the world. And so, of course, we're going to have conversations with with federal regulators as, as we start moving into some of these types of areas. So that's just some context for uh, for for how a headline like that got out there, but we have just to confirm, like we have absolutely not applied for a federal banking license. Do you intend to? I think we want to um, continue to grow the business. I think the question is always, you know, are there things we can't do today legally um, that w- w- would require some other type of license? You know, if, for example, you know, one of the really powerful things about tokens and smart contracts is the ability to, to express more complex forms of economic arrangements that can include things like loans and debt and, you know, tokenized lending, tokenized debt offerings are, are really interesting. And you can build some really innovative things that involve assets and people from all around the world. And, 
you know, we, we may be able to work with banking partners to do some of that. But if we really want to get close to the metal and, and kind of reinvent what it means to to underwrite and secure a loan using crypto, it may mean, it may mean that we need other licenses. But that's not a business we're in right now. And so um, we'll sort of as the as our business plans evolve, we'll continually evaluate what we need to do. So I got this from the same article, and so feel free to correct any misconceptions here. But as far as I understand, you also are looking at registering with the SEC as a brokerage and trading platform. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So um, our our highest priority right now is um, establishing a, a broker dealer and um, an alternative trading system and operating within that framework. And that's really aimed at enabling us to provide capabilities to businesses and to investors to take advantage of tokenized investment contracts. So we're really excited about what you can do with uh, smart contracts and tokens in terms of representing investment contracts. And we ha- we sort of have a general thesis that we're moving into this era of kind of the tokenization of everything. And that includes, you know, traditional things that are equity-like or things that are debt-like. Uh, it includes the tokenization of and securitization of property and the ability to build really interesting lending and investment models around property. And, you know, all of these things are, are regulated activities. And, and obviously, the SEC has made it very clear that they view those as regulated activities. We, we agree about that. But, you know, a, a lot of the really specific rules around how you do that with a crypto asset haven't really been kind of worked through. So that's something we're pretty actively working towards and, you know, in- intend to offer capabilities in that area. This is somewhat of a long-term question, although because of how quickly these technologies take off, it may be shorter term than I think. But um, some of the functions that you're talking about offering are also being built as decentralized protocols and smart contracts. So how would you plan to compete with, for instance, like a decentralized exchange that isn't taking the kinds of fees that you would probably charge? Sure. Sean, do you want to take that? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it kind of it gets to this really interesting discussion that um, has, has been um, in focus, particularly lately around decentralization and centralization and what's the balance there in any given use case. I mean, generally, we've always seen those those things as, as things that could, could exist together for, for different use cases, not necessarily pitted against one another. And that can be realized in a few different ways. Something like, you know, a level one architecture where you have a base store of value in distributed fashion can also be surfaced in particular applications in a slightly more centralized fashion. So if you have a store of value um, that's fully decentralized that may be tradable kind of at the at level one. But uh, if it's tradable into smart contracts that are, say, considered investments or securities, um, then that may require a different set of rules that are encoded in a slightly more centralized fashion. And that's not a, necessarily a, a bad thing. That can be an enabling thing. And those two different layers, the decentral and the, the central, can, can work well together to enable people to participate in these kinds of, these, uh, these kinds of contracts and products. Yeah, that's interesting. That makes sense. That's sort of like these more centralized relayers that are building on top of the decentralized protocols. Um, okay, so we're going to discuss Poloniex and stablecoins and or your, your stablecoin and more. But first, I'd like to take a quick break to tell you about our fabulous sponsors. Clarity PR is a global strategic communications agency that shapes market-leading narratives for brands in crypto and blockchain to drive awareness and grow business. Working with clients like Atlas Quantum, CoinMint, Securitize, Smart Valor, and Verbex, 
Clarity PR can move quickly to differentiate the value of your business in the noisy blockchain and crypto space. Named as one of the fastest growing agencies in PR Week's Top 150, Clarity is well-versed in providing guidance to a wide range of companies looking to build their reputation and deliver high-profile media relations campaigns across mainstream business outlets, as well as major tech and vertical trade outlets. To learn more and see a list of services, visit clarity.pr. Now it's time to recognize someone sponsored by Preshade. If you've been wondering when a truly new consumer app would be launched on a blockchain-based protocol at scale, your wait is over. Preshade is building the future you deserve, a trustworthy and transparent one by design, powered by the Goodwill Composite Protocol. Today, Preshade wants to recognize John Witchell. As president and COO at Gitprime, John is bringing deep dive analytics to code bases around the world, which highlight work patterns, identify team and developer specific areas for improvement, and offer concrete data to stakeholders on engineering progress. An innovator with integrity, John's passion for bringing big ideas to light is changing the world one success story at a time. Thank you to John for guiding the way so that others can succeed as well. Go to Preshade.org to learn about the Preshade community and recognize someone. Raising the bar, together, with Preshade, launching this summer. I'm speaking with Jeremy Allaire and Sean Neville of Circle. Let's talk about Circle Invest. The The product offers Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Ethereum, Ethereum Classic, Litecoin, Monero, and Zcash. How did you decide upon these assets? Yeah, you know, we, we look at a lot of different things. We're obviously looking at, you know, what are assets that have, you know, significant market cap and liquidity? What are assets that represent what we consider to be, um, you know, cl- clear categories? You know, a lot of these are either kind of blockchain infrastructures or, or core kind of payment currency type use cases. We recently published something called the Circle Asset Framework which is a framework that we look at for any kind of listing decision, whether that's listing in our exchange or something that we'll make markets in with, with circle trade or something that we want to, you know, make available in an integrated way to consumers. What you see there is, is really just a starting point. Our belief is that over time, retail investors are going to want to invest thematically in lots of different categories and you know, you, you see in the product today, buy the market, which is a way to sort of buy a market cap adjusted investment in the full collection of coins that are that are there. But you could imagine how that could evolve over time to support other types of collections and, and to, you know, as we get into a world where there's not just, you know, five or 10, but maybe 25 or 50 or, or eventually thousands of different types of crypto assets, how do you create a kind of experience for a long-term investor, uh, a more of a passive investment strategy that um, that someone can make and, and organize that in a way that makes sense to people. So that's very much how we think about Circle Invest. It's it's not really designed for the day trader. There's lots of you know there's crypto exchanges for people that want to trade in everything and or, or trade really broadly and, and day trade. Um, it's definitely designed towards someone who wants to take a longer-term investment strategy and 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 those assets were the the very clearest to initially, you know, get out there. Um, Sean, I don't know if you want to add to that. Yeah, maybe just, you know, a few things. I think when we look at any at any project, you want to look at the fundamentals, you know, how, what are the kind of core tenets uh, of the project and do they, do they align with the core tenets of the cryptocurrency community? But just also uh, look at the technology, you know, the team, so committed, experienced team behind it. Is it creating real value for, for people, or, you know, sort of set up to succeed? And of course, there are 
there are market dynamics to consider uh, because there need to be needs to be indicators of sufficient liquidity um, and and then of course legal reviews um, which which may be you know b- dependent on the jurisdiction in which the project is listed or launched um, so you sort of look at all of those things together to assess any project. And I think over time there will be a lot of really interesting um, businesses and experiments and um, collectives that can be uh, tokenized as part of that framework that will become really interesting to people who are not just um, interested in speculative investment and, and sort of day trading or swing trading, but um, but making significant investments in those projects and, and the value that those specific projects uh, bring to bear and um, and those are the those are the kinds of projects that we're particularly interested in. At the time you launched Circle Invest, a CoinDesk article noted that an initial screenshot included XRP, but you eventually launched without it. Why not list XRP? Yeah, we're obviously continuing to evaluate different payment and settlement tokens. I think there's obviously been a, you know some discussion, uh, you know, and, and debate around the legal status of something like XRP. And, and obviously we're going to, you know, pay very close attention to that and any decisions we make. And for that reason, I was also curious why it was still listed on Poloniex and not only that, but, but just in general, kind of, I was curious to know what standards you're using for whether or not to list coins on Poloniex. Sure. Yeah. So as you know, um, we took over Poloniex a few months ago. Um, our highest priority has been integrating that into our core operations, stabilizing a lot of things. So I think if, if you've been a user of Poloniex, you know, I think they experienced an unbelievable amount of growth last year. And so just making sure that there's very high availability on the wallet infrastructure. Uh, when we took over, there were hundreds of thousands of, of backlogged cases. Many of those need to be kind of wrestled to the ground you know, from an operations and engineering perspective. So it's just been an enormous effort to just sort of get that into uh, a stronger place. We've also been, you know, changing um, and improving the verification procedures for the platform, making sure that it's compliant with the U.S. laws around identity verification, lots of things. So those have been our highest priorities. We're also, of course, um, looking at the token listing side of it, both, you know, are, are there are there assets that are not on Poloniex today that we think would be really compelling? And, and there certainly are. And you can expect to see us launching more assets on the exchange. And, and are there assets on there that don't make sense, whether it's for market liquidity reasons or lack of developer traction or, or legal reasons? And so you could expect to see us maybe remove some as well uh, on, on those criteria. So we don't publicly comment on, you know, what those are, or when we'll do that or anything like that, but we have a pretty rigorous framework around that now. And, and so you'll, you'll hear a lot more about that in the coming you know, period of time here. And, but have you applied that rigorous framework there? Because obviously if there's questions around the legal status of XRP for your Circle Invest product, but you're continuing to list it on Poloniex, there's a, either a difference in standard or the standard hasn't been applied. And then on top of that, when I look at the list of all the coins available on Poloniex, there's a whole bunch I haven't heard of <laughs> that are quite obscure. So I don't, I did, I wasn't sure if that was just because you're still in the process of of implementing that or, or if you have already called some? Yeah. So we, um, you know, basically 
taking over a platform with the scale and operation is a non-trivial undertaking. It's not like you take it over and then boom, you can just start flipping switches and, and doing things. You have to be very careful about it because you're dealing with customer funds and, um, and, and it's, it's more complex than, than just sort of making those kinds of decisions. But the highest priority has been obviously getting that infrastructure in a really strong place and dealing with the kind of core obligations that we have around, you know, making sure it's highly available making sure that customer issues are being addressed, uh, making sure we are verifying all of our customers in the right way. Those have been the highest priorities, but listings and delistings and that whole framework is also a priority for us. And we're going to be doing a lot there. And a slide from one of your presentations that was released on Twitter by Nathaniel Popper of the New York Times showed that the SEC had promised you that they would not pursue any enforcement action against Poloniex for prior activity. Is that true? Um, I'm not going to comment on a, a, a rumored presentation. Well, there was a, screen, a, a photograph. It wasn't a rumor. Sure. I'm, I'm familiar, of course. We absolutely have had very strong engagement with all the relevant regulators. But what we do, you know, we're going to do everything that regulators ask us to do um, with, you know, that requires compliance with the law. I think... This is a space which is a very much a moving target. Um, you know, where this space was back last fall versus where it was in December and January versus where it is today. It's evolving rapidly and, um, regulators perspective on the space is evolving rapidly as well, as well. So what's important for us is that we have really positive, constructive engagement with regulators all the time. And if there's lines of business that we want to get into that require different forms of licensing, we're going to do that. But if there are, you know, regulators that are looking at the market and looking at, you know, activities that they find challenging in the market, and they're going to pursue those, um, we're going to fully cooperate with them as well on those. And we have touched on this at various points during the interview, but I don't I think I've given you an opportunity to really lay out your vision for what you want Poloniex to be from your blog post introducing uh, or, or talking about your acquisition of it, it seems like you have a pretty heady vision. Describe what it is that you'd like Poloniex to eventually look like. Sure. Sean, do you want to take a lead on that? And I'll chime in. Yeah, I think, um, sure. I'm not, Jeremy, I'm sure you'll have a lot to say on this too. But conceptually, the thing that's pretty exciting to us about the space in general is is that um, we are approaching the time when we can have something like a token marketplace so that People who are starting businesses or interesting projects um, can can tokenize those and um, surface those things in a marketplace where other people can participate, including investors if appropriate. And um, and we want to have a platform that supports that, and that means providing you know software and, and tooling and technical support for such projects, you know guidance um, as appropriate for such projects, so that people can launch and, and support them. And um, if we think about you know what has been referred to as is a sort of token tokenization of everything and meaning that all forms of value can become represented as a token then a marketplace to support those tokens and to offer those uh, in a multi-sided fashion is really interesting and i think that's starts with something like uh, an exchange today but it expands to be you know much more broad than that yeah i think you know at a at a high level you know the the phenomenon of icos was obviously and has been a sort of experiment in capital formation 
And, you know, obviously it's sort of been heralded as, you know, this is this, you know, incredible new way for capital formation. Lots of that, as we know, is, is sort of scammy and really problematic. But I do think that there is a fundamental breakthrough here. And the fundamental breakthrough is it's possible to form capital and to surface investment contracts uh, that allow people to invest and become stakeholders in in technologies, in projects, in protocols, and in actual businesses, and including um, being stakeholders, not just, you know, potentially getting profits out of how a business grows, but being stakeholders in the governance of the business, you know, sort of voting style mechanisms, uh, being stakeholders that in a hybrid way where you're both an owner and a customer and a user. Um, so there's a, a lot of really interesting experimentation that's happening right now in essentially the recreation of the idea of the firm and what are, what do kind of microeconomic uh, organization units in this new global crypto powered digital economy look like? And how do you form capital around those? How do you form contracts, whether you're, it's a labor contract or a contract to interact with that business? How do you run all that in a crypto native way? Um, it's a really fascinating area. And we feel like, again, we're in the really early stages of the, the ability to kind of reconceptualize and design the modern or postmodern firm around this. And we see a tremendous opportunity to provide what we think of as kind of market platforms that allow businesses and even individuals to tokenize things, to tokenize businesses and to uh, facilitate market participation in those. And to ultimately, of course, provide investment and liquidity options on those as well. So when we kind of think about the long term here, it's really how do we build out, as Sean said, those multi-sided marketplaces to embrace the possibilities here and, and just, you know, underscore as well that we're still very much in the early stages of this. And I, I think there's some really interesting experimentation that's happening around everything from the you know, the economic models to the governance models and, and so forth. And we're just excited, obviously, to help try and, you know, create tools and help people, you know, facilitate doing more of these things. Yeah, I've spent most of my career as a freelancer. So I kind of love what you're talking about, because I think it would be amazing the more people that could be independent and not have to uh, work for a traditional business, because I've loved my, uh, my stints being independent. Um, so tell me more about your stable coin, USD coin. You've decided to go the route of backing it with dollar reserves. So how does, first of all, why have you chosen that model? Because there's multiple models. And for listeners who missed my stable coin episode, you should definitely go back and listen to that. I will put links to it in the show notes because there's multiple ways you can structure these. And this is one, it's a slightly more centralized method. Why, why did you go this route? Yeah, I'll start with that. And, and, and I'm sure Sean will add, I think actually, I want to connect a dot to what we were just talking about here, which is, you know, all of these models of tokenization, let's say if I want to, you know, tokenize a business, and that allows people to either invest in it or pay to use a service in it, or I want to tokenize property, and I want a slice of the property, or I want to get some kind of yield out of it, or I want to tokenize a loan and enable someone to have some kind of debt relationship. All of these things need fiat. They all need a way to take, uh, at a minimum, a kind of price-stable currency to participate in those. And so a kind of fundamental infrastructure that's really missing right now 
is that. And it really is critical fuel to enable all these smart contract applications to really thrive and grow. And so um, that's a really key missing piece. And it's a missing piece, too, to even realizing the idea that we can move value around the same way we can move information around. I want to move dollars in 10 seconds in a in an irreversible way, globally, securely, to any device that's connected to the internet. And tokenized fiat allows us to do that, and it allows us to provide a way to use fiat in all of these smart contract infrastructures and, and, and projects and applications. You know, so if I'm a business and I want to, you know, tokenize and I want to enable people to invest in my business, it's not likely that I want to receive my investment in ether um, or a volatile commodity asset, right? Just like I wouldn't want to receive an investment in my business in oil or gold or bushels or bushels of wheat. So, you know, having that is really important, but also, you know, businesses and people, individuals live in the real world economy. They pay taxes in the real world economy. They are paid salaries and wages and they buy goods and services in real world economies. And, Obviously, there are, are hyperinflation scenarios where they definitely don't want the real world currency that is in a market. But, you know, by and large in the United States and Europe and most other markets, that's that's a reality. And so if you're forming financial contracts or you're facilitating payments, being able to do that using something that's denominated in your local fiat currency is really, really important. So for us... Um, you know, the, the model that we've pursued with U.S. dollar coin is really straightforward. How do we take the benefits of crypto infrastructure and public chains for security, speed, settlement, interoperability, global reach, and extend those benefits to the U.S. dollar? And and we've really, you know, created a model that, that works that way. Sean, maybe you could talk a little bit about sort of the approach we're taking with U.S. dollar coin and center. And, and it's quite different than, I think, a lot of the other fiat stablecoin approaches or even just stablecoin approaches generally that are out there. Yeah, sure. I think, you know, there, there are lots of interesting projects in the space, algorithmically backed stablecoin projects, you know, crypto asset backed projects and, and, uh, obviously, you know, fiat backed and combinations of those and hybrids. And this is, this is a full fiat backed mechanism, but it's not, uh, just circles mechanism in that circle has us dollar coin and, and, you know, other potential fiat backed coins. What, what we've done is is uh, fostered a framework for multiple members of a network to mint fiat-backed stable coins. Circle is one such mentor of these coins, but you can imagine other companies participating in the same network. And that network is managed by something called Center, uh, C-E-N-T-R-E, which we are spinning out and don- donating a good bit of intellectual property to so that it can operate separately. And the notion there is that Center as a network can enforce network rules on all the members that participate in this framework, including Circle. And those rules involve things like ensuring full uh, licensure, solvency, audits, um, and uh, in general network behaviors. And so that that kind of thing can't be managed just by one of the issuing mentors like a Circle, um, but needs to be provided by a separate authority. And so Circle is delivering us dollar coin but there there will also be others who similarly offer us dollar coin using the same exact framework and the same framework can be used to offer euro coin or yen coin and uh you know others uh in the network that are all pegged to underlying fiat assets 
Yeah, so we announced um, recently that Bitmain had, you know, they'd invest in Circle, but they're also becoming a founding member of Center and setting up businesses to issue fiat stablecoins in some Asian markets as well, using the Center protocols and, and, and network. Interesting. Yeah, this is actually very interesting. Basically, let me recap it for you to make sure that I understood it correctly. Essentially, you have created this nonprofit organization that will set standards for entities that want to accept dollar reserves in order to issue these USD coins. And so there can be multiple providers of the USD coin. Is that correct? That is correct. And and other fiat coins as well. So there could be euro coins, yen coins, you know, in, in any currency market that wants to operate with this with this kind of technology. Okay. And so I imagine there will be standards around like auditing, maybe something around the standards for the bank and certain, I don't know, licensing or registration requirements that it has to have something like that. You got it. Yeah. So it's, it's basically, it's a membership and governance scheme and it's an open source technology, you know, project and open standard protocol definition. So it sort of brings those all together and, the membership and government piece, really, you know, to become a member, you have to be licensed to be able to, you know, issue electronic money, whether as like a money transmitter or being a bank itself. You need to obviously be in good standing with your compliance with that. And you need to also, you know, have the ability to prove solvency so that the minted and issued assets are, you know, fully solvent and are provable and published publicly uh, regularly. And then there's some you know, auditing of technical procedures that have to do with how uh, an issuer's own technologies interact with the center smart contracts that are for minting and burning of these tokens to make sure that there's confidence in the quality and reliability there. And, and there there will be an evolving set of other network rules um, that, that will emerge around that as well. This is interesting because I, in that previous episode I did on the stable coins, I had asked one of the guests, he was Rune Christensen, who does MakerDAO, where they the way they do it is they over-collateralize their, their coin, which is pegged to the US dollar, or whose value is pegged to the US dollar. But they, he said to me, oh, you know, that kind of coin is centralized. And I just wonder what his take would be on this, because this is more decentralized, but obviously... As we've seen in the past, banks aren't entirely trustworthy. <laughs> so um, anyway, I, yeah, I, I do think it's a very interesting model, though. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think, you know, in our view, like people want dollars and so they're actual dollars, you know. So I think in the future that people might want something that's not an actual dollar. They might want something that's that has stable value that is based on a bond or an algorithm or a mixture of, of, of things. Maybe it's a basket of reserve currencies that are algorithmically traded to be price stable. And there's so many ideas for how you could do this in the future. And we're really excited about those. And at the protocol layer, what Center's working on can support those kinds of things as well in the future. But for where we're at today, whether it's making payments over public chains or participating in investment contracts if we really want this to take hold at a mainstream level with businesses and individuals, you know, having fiat money actually work on this infrastructure, we think is is quite important. And so that is why we're using that as a starting place today. Yeah, I think one puzzle piece that would need to be worked out for sure. Well, I mean, actually, this is slightly tangential, but I did read that you guys had pitched yourselves to the OCC 
to help set standards for custody of crypto assets. I'm just curious what you think would be the recommendations that should be adopted. Yeah, I mean, I think um, custody over crypto assets is is something that, you know, folks who've been in the industry for a while have a pretty good understanding of in terms of how to do it with high levels of, of security. Um, and it's continuing to evolve. I mean, when we got started, really, the only thing people were custodying was Bitcoin. And, you know, now people are custodying, you know, upwards of 100 different types of crypto assets. And it starts to get you know, more complicated. So what is, you know, you know, a a token could be, you know, representing a dollar. And so you're custodying a dollar, it could represent a digital commodity, like a Bitcoin or ether. Um, A token could be an investment contract. So essentially, you're custodying a, a underlying bearer instrument that represents some kind of equity value, you know, when you think about what a house or a car is, you know, the, the actual property is not the physical object. It's the title and the title is, is a, is a certificate of some sort. So if you tokenized those kinds of things, you know, securing and storing and holding on to all these is going to be a really different, uh, a different thing. And it's quite different than, you know, the custody requirements for what a bank is, which is really, you know, you know, the kind of safeguards and record keeping and audits and procedures and, it's really around, you know, safeguards and procedures and reporting and visibility and that kind of stuff that is really what defines a qualified custodian in any given one of these spheres. But I think this is going to actually, uh, custody of crypto is sort of like saying custody of all forms of property. And, and, um, it's going to quite quickly exceed the, the realm that even traditional bank custodianship focused on. You already answered the next question I was going to ask you, but I do still want to discuss it a little bit more. I have been reading like Bank of New York Mellon, JP Morgan and Northern Trust have all been looking at providing custody services. And I've been at some of these conferences where people seem to feel that those institutions are more trustworthy and that once they enter the space, then some of the crypto native companies won't stand a chance. So I'm just curious, like, how do you feel you will compete once, once these companies start coming in? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, people maybe thought AT&T was more trustworthy than say Google or Walmart was more trustworthy brand than Amazon or you know, you name it. I mean, basically, the big industrial giants of media, communications, and retail have all been replaced by technology companies as the adored brands that people trust. You know, there are obviously chinks in the armor of some of these big internet companies, and we've seen that play out, obviously. But I think, you know, technology companies have done an incredible job of delivering exceptional value, great products, incredible user experiences with better economics than their kind of pre-technology company uh, counterparts. And so we think in the future of finance, yeah, I think it's going to be, you know, global technology companies that are built natively on this infrastructure that people adore and trust. And so it's going to be kind of one in the market, not just, uh, because you have some old guy's name on your company. <laughs> yeah. Although I do think with money, it's, it's a little bit of a bigger leap than it would be just for communication. It, it may be. I mean, the dominant retail banking brand in China is Alipay. And, you know, that that is not, you know, Bank of Industrial China or whatever. It's Alipay. It's a company that's barely been around for a few years and almost 800 million people use it for retail finance. So I think it's very possible for technology companies to establish really tremendous trustworthy franchises 
Um, I do agree that it's a higher bar, but I think if you look at the the generations, the you know sort of Gen X and Millennials and younger who have been driving the adoption of these products and services, they've they've proven quite willing to embrace um, you know technology native brands and companies, and we certainly think that that opportunity exists in this world of finance. Since you mentioned China, I want to discuss that further. China seems to be part of your strategy. You've taken investment from. Baidu, IDG Capital Partners, Fimbushi Capital, other China-based firms. You formed a separate company, China, Circle China. I, I don't know what the latest is on that. You've received investment from Bitmain, one of the largest crypto mining equipment manufacturers and Bitcoin pool operators. So how does China fit into Circle strategy, especially now given, because I feel like a lot of this stuff happened, except minus the Bitmain part, happened before we saw this big clampdown in China around crypto. Yeah, I could take part of that and, and Sean, maybe jump in too. I, I think um, we've always been, you know, very impressed with the pace of, of innovation out of the China market, in particular in fintech. As a market, it's just so far ahead of the US and Europe. So there's a lot to learn there. Um, it, it's This is an example of a market where they, they're just you know way out innovating the West. And, uh, and so there, there's always been a lot we want to learn there. I think there is a long-term thesis that we have, which is that we, we do think that China is in the process of opening up their economy. We do think that they're in the process of, of opening up their currency to be um, more open and interoperable with other reserve currencies. And um, and there's an incredible amount of enthusiasm in China for blockchain technology. Uh, if you've ever been over there, it's it's fanatical, in fact. So there's just an incredible amount of interest there. The People's Bank of China, um, you know, this was more info was published on this last week uh, on Coinbase, uh, or I'm sorry, on CoinDesk. But, you know, they're <laughs> they're marching ahead, building a crypto powered, you know, reserve, you know, digital currency for for RMB. So they're racing ahead. I think in, in this area. And so again, there's, there's just a lot to learn there. You know, at Circle, you know, we have a, a global strategy. We have, you know, our international headquarters in Dublin. We've got operations throughout Europe. We've got obviously significant operations in the U.S. And we, um, we have, uh, we have operational staff in China. Um, they're employed by Circle China that support the global business. And we have a Hong Kong operation, which, uh, you know, supports um, Circle Trade, which is a significant business in in the broader you know Asian market in in crypto asset trading. So there are a lot of pieces to that. And I wanted to ask about the Bitmain investment because Bitmain has a somewhat notorious reputation in the West. I shouldn't have even qualified that with somewhat. I would definitely say it's notorious reputation. Why take venture funding from Bitmain? Sure, Sean, do you want to take that? Yeah, I mean, I guess one of the things to maybe reiterate or echo a little bit about what Jeremy said is, you know, Circle is was founded as an international com- company, and I think you know we're talking together here from the United States, but when we talk about connecting people globally and the new web of finance, that's not just connecting people from say New York to California. And I think sometimes in tech, especially in the U.S., we have a tendency to look through a you know, for better or for worse, a, a Bay Area lens when the reality is that in this particular space, the lens is very, uh, it's international and um, Asia focused at this point. It may not be that they're a generation ahead of everyone else, but they're a few years ahead, I think, in, in leading the way and leading the way in multiple 
along multiple directions, including uh, infrastructure and you know forward thinking about what this really looks like uh, for all of us uh, down the road. And and so that means that there are also really interesting partnerships and uh, including investment partnerships in Asia uh, as well as in you know Europe and elsewhere that are helpful for the vision that we're that we're attempting to accomplish. I think you know Bitmain specifically is the leading Bitcoin company right now in the world, uh, but has a very broad vision. And, you know, Jihan Wu is, has a long-term vision for the impact of this technology in positive ways on the world. Of course, there have been some debates around governance and um, approaches to certain things around, um, you know, the future of Bitcoin and, you know, alternative paths. And I think one of the things that is challenging with Bitcoin is unlike previous debates around standards and, and development of you know global technology where we had governance mechanisms to allow debates to occur but ultimately be you know time boxed or somehow sandboxed so that you know in the past, say a Microsoft could disagree with an IBM but ultimately agree on the same standard, you know, HTTP, um, so that we didn't have multiple protocols, multiple web protocols. But even if there was debate, there was a way to agree on a standard. That hasn't really been the case with something like, uh, you know, Bitcoin specifically. And so that's led to some disagreements that have been you know, notable in the community. That doesn't in any way detract from, um, you know, the, the broad vision that we're all trying to accomplish here together. So I guess that's what I would say in Bitmain's favor. I think some of the allegations against them are also in the direction of whether or not the practices they use are anti-competitive and against decentralization and things like that. So I definitely think, you know, I, I don't know how founded or unfounded those are. Uh, I did explore this a little bit in my episode with David Vorek, who has who started Saya coin and then now has started obelisk which is getting into mining and you know i also contacted jihan to to find out what his take was on what david was saying so it's not fully clear really what happened you know it, it ended up being a little bit he said she said but i i guess i just wonder if you feel like there's any risk to you guys to partner with somebody who is perceived as maybe not holding this principle of decentralization as high as some other players in the space. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, if you, if you get to know Jihan, he is incredibly passionate about decentralization. He's incredibly passionate about this infrastructure being broadly adopted. He's not, you know, just wedded to kind of one model for blockchains you know, he's a, for example, he's a huge, huge advocate for, you know, fiat stable coins. And that's a completely different, if not orthogonal dimension to something like the kind of core, you know, Bitcoin network. So it's more nuanced and the ideas are broad. I mean, we're passionate about Bitcoin. We're passionate about Ethereum. We're passionate about fiat. We're passionate about security tokens. We're passionate about a lot of things in crypto. It's it's not unidimensional. I think there are people who are very unidimensional maximalists and so on. And that's just not who we are. I don't think that's who Jihan is either. Okay. Well, it's been so great talking with you both. Where can people learn more about you and Circle? Circle.com. <laughs> okay, great. Well, thanks for coming on Unchained. Our pleasure. Thanks, Laura. Take care, Laura. To learn more about Circle, check out the show notes inside your podcast episode. New episodes of Unchained come out every Tuesday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you like this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. And if you're not yet subscribed to my other podcast, Unconfirmed, I highly recommend you check it out and subscribe now. 
Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Elaine Selby, Fragile Recording, Jenny Josephson, Rahul Singaretti, and Daniel Ness. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.